The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really melody maker. I'm seeing that a dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Gu Young Kim, assistant professor in the Department of Humanities at the Cheney University of Pennsylvania. He has published extensively on various aspects of K-pop, the topic of today's podcast, including his book From Factory Girls to K-pop Idol Girls. Cultural Politics of Developmentalism, Patriarchy, and Neoliberalism in South Korea's Popular Music Industry, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Guyon. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? I'm not a uh, sports guy, but if you insist me to answer it, uh, I would have to say Team Korea. So, Which is the soccer team, right? The male soccer team. Uh, that's most kind of a representative answer, I would guess. But I don't like soccer. I tend to like uh, more like an individual sport rather than team sports. But uh, okay. under under the umbrella of uh, Team Korea in any international sport competition, whatever Team Korea sends out, then that's my team. Okay. <laughs> so second, what is your favorite political song? Most of my favorite political songs are in Korean. But my recent one is about Occupy Wall Street Movement. 2011 by Lupe Fiasco, titled End of the World. And finally, what is your favorite political book? My favorite political book is German Ideology by Marx and Engels. The book has basically forced me to who I am. That has been endless inspiration for my research and my personal endeavor. So I have to admit that I'm fairly ignorant on the topic. So let's start from the basics. What is K-pop and when and how did it emerge? K-pop is a commercial genre of popular music produced and it is targeted to South Korean audience. K as a prefix, it should indicate the location of origin or location of production to South Korea. According to the uh, you know, general consensus, K-pop began in 1996 with the debut of the first K-pop boy band, which is called H.O.T., High Five of Teenager. It has some kind of a standard aesthetics of matching colors in outfit and highly synchronized choreographies and a bubble poppy sound and also more like a feminized outlook of the male idols. Right. So why did you decide to study K-pop academically? I started to do my academic research in January 2012. There was an occasion that at the time one of the most popular K-pop idol bands called Ghost Generation made a first debut on American network talk show. And at the time, I was teaching at Temple University, Department of Asian Studies. And at the time, I didn't know anything about K-pop, not to mention the girl group. And then when I went to school to teach, many students started to ask me a whole bunch of questions about K-pop and the group. But to be honest, I didn't know anything about them. So that was my kind of initiation to begin right. researching on the topic. I always like these accidental stories of how people come to their topics. Yes. You argue that the development of K-pop is related to the economic development of South Korea. Can you explain mm -hmm. that? To understand the political economy origin of K-pop, we may have to take uh, several steps back 
to understand characteristics of South Korean economy, at least as far back as 1960s. So from 1960s to late 1980s, the future of South Korean economy was export-driven, light consumer production economy. Basically, with cheap labors and with abundance of labor force, such economy was built upon importing natural resources or the, so to speak, ingredients for consumer goods and basically assembled based upon different degrees of the technological difficulties and then exported back. And this is how such economy had grown. But since late 1980s, early 1990s, the South Korean economy got stronger with a stronger labor force, or the trade union. And then that means South economy had to charge more labor force. And that doesn't give kind of a competitive edge to the previous export-oriented economy. So the society, spearheaded by government, started to find what is the next economic item to keep South Korean economy afloat. Specifically in 1994, uh, there was a presidential committee to discuss that matter, where South Korean economy should be headed. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest takeaways from that the committee was there was a Jurassic Park moment. At that time, 1993-94, the Hollywood blockbuster Jurassic Park, directed by Spielberg, mm-hmm. the movie made more money than the millions of Hyundai cars sold combined. So that was mm-hmm. the biggest moment that the South Korean government realize, oh, this is another kind of uh, item that we can make national economy going and floating. So from that point on, government, with partnership with the private companies, they started to extensively invest and also provide all sorts of direct or indirect governmental or private support right. to make economy as next big item for economic development. Right. And so one of the things that I've noticed is that there's also a huge increase of Korean movies and TV series. Are these part of that same development strategy? Yes, you're right. Basically, K-pop is kind of a latecomer compared to movie and K-dramas. In late 1990s, especially with 1997 Asian financial crisis, there was a kind of a term that's called Hallyu, that means Korean wave. Channels in Hong Kong and China, they used to import dramas from Japan. But around that time, when they were hit by 1997 Asian financial crisis, they were not able to afford the high price tag of Japanese dramas or movies. Mm-hmm. As an alternative, they started to get syndication from the Korean dramas and movies. Actually, the global boom of South Korean popular culture was begun by huge Asian, especially China and Kong's demand for South Korean movies and dramas. Interesting. K-pop has become a major product. What roughly is the economical value of K-pop to the South Korean economy? To begin with, I'm not a number person, so I don't follow exact (laughs) statistics, but I just Googled some statistics about that. So... Economic value of K-pop in 2020, especially with one of the most representative K-pop player right now is BTS. Last year, their single Dynamite, with that single economic impact in South Korean economy, was $1.5 billion. With just that single song. And then, one song? Yeah, one song. I mean, I don't mean the kind of value of the song in terms of the sales, but it's a ripple effect. Like tourists coming into Korea, 
uh, all the other mm-hmm. you know, consumer products they are endorsing. And if you look at group's economic impact at the time, 2018, was $4.9 billion to Korean economy. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. That might actually be larger than some very small countries. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> GDPs. So one thing that K-pop's impact is not just the economic worth of the song. If you look at how K-pop songs are economically a trade, they don't make much money by selling songs because South Korean music industry doesn't charge much of guarantee mm-hmm. for each song. So how K-pop industry makes money is using their idols to various endorsements, the commercial endorsements, so a bunch of other activities, so to speak. So one of the biggest repeat facts of K-pop is skyrocketing rise of consumer products, clothes, the idols in those. Right. And there are lots of huge hike of tourism coming into Korea. In 2019, there was $12.3 billion increase of tourism coming to Korea, mainly from K-pop fans. And is this tourism mostly from other Asian countries or from other regions too? Uh, yeah, but mainly uh, if you look at the statistics, most of them are coming from China and other Asian countries. But with the success of BTS and other you know, Western uh, idol groups like uh, Blackpink, there are growing numbers of Western, European and American tourists too. Right. Now, for example, the United Kingdom and the United States have long used music for soft power to improve their image abroad. How does K-pop function for the South Korean state in that respect? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I noticed that there was a newspaper article about a couple of weeks ago. It talks about the uh, Korean studies program in the Free University of Berlin, Germany. Mm-hmm. And it grew almost you know, 10 times over the last four years, right. a few years. And another article from LA Times, the Korean language program in UCLA has surpassed all other languages combined. The, the fastest growing language program at UCLA and other universities. And there are growing numbers of uh, reports. they saying the Korean language courses are high in demand and virtually any place right. in the world. And there are lots of recognition of Korea as, as a notion of cool, right. Korean cool or cool Korea. So with uh, K-pop and other you know, uh, South Korean popular culture, recognition of Korea as a brand has been tremendously improved. Right. Once again, going back to the origin of K-pop around the 1997 Asian financial crisis, at the time, this Korea's basically main value was, you know, the fallen dragon. Yeah. Right? It became a failure of the modern industrialization. Within 20 years or so, since that the economic fall of Asian dragon, Korea has become one of the most hip countries in the world. Right. And that's a phenomenal transformation. Now, talking about transformations, you actually also very much focus on the gender dynamics of K-pop. In what way does K-pop reflect and perhaps even has changed gender roles in South Korean society? Well, that is one of the biggest questions that I try to answer in my book and other research projects I have done so far. Contrary to common expectation, with the rising numbers of K-pop female bands and groups and their phenomenal you know, contribution to the South Korean economy, 
at least in my research, there not has been that much change, proactive change in terms of gender expectation or gender equality in Kiri in South Korean society. One of the biggest arguments that I made in my book, if you look at the uh, the title of the book, From Factory Goes to K-pop Idol Girls, the, my intention of that title is even though we have seemingly different, seemingly uh, advanced uh, social status of women, in terms of century-long tradition of patriarchal sexism, there's not much change. And then my argument in my book is one of the biggest reasons why we have seen the tremendous amounts of success of K-pop female idol band has been on the Korea's century-long sexist legacy. The females are easy to be manipulated, easy to be exploited, easy to be controlled. And so, by and large, would you argue then that the female K-pop bands live up to the stereotype and are kind of branded as this sexist stereotype of what a woman is? But earlier, you also said that there was an element of feminization towards this. How is that with the boy bands? Because they seem to not be the traditional Korean men in terms of the sexism. Yes, that's that's exactly a right observation. So... There's a multiple ways of transformation in terms of typical confusion uh, gender ideas. So speaking about feminization of male idols, we have to talk about their changing target audiences. Once again, 1997 Asian financial crisis changed almost everything in terms of gender relations. So with grand transformation of the Korean economy from well-protected, stable job opportunities at the manufacturing industry to more spontaneous or precarious neoliberalization. So we have, especially around 1997 financial crisis, uh, there are too many uh, layoffs and disemployment, mainly from mid or higher position of male workers, along with disemployments of these uh, traditional breadwinners. The South Korean economy has incorporated part-time, spontaneous, or precarious labor force, which is women. Mm-hmm. That's another kind of dynamics, essentially dynamics of uh, manipulation, exploitation of uh, female workforce as a cheap, docile mm-hmm. uh, labor. So even though they don't have full employment or stable employment, obviously their status in terms of economic social standard in Korea their status have improved. So that means the female audiences start to get more purchasing power and the K-pop industry try to market the growing needs of emotional demand from female workers because female workers being doubly or triply exploited at home and workplace in society in general. Right. So having said that South Korean society is heavily patriarchal and sexist society, the female workers, female in general, have been at least double or triply oppressed, at least mentally and psychologically. And they need something to fuse out their frustration or some kind of uh, stress. So there, the feminized boy bands came into play. So they provide the feminized boy idols, give some kind of imaginary satisfaction to console, comfort, you know, female workers, or female in general, who've been right. stressed out. Right. And I assume they do this in a politically non-threatening manner, right? I mean, they're, That's exactly right. These bands don't have a strong political message. They're not challenging in any way. Well, I mean, once again, the point is not political. 
the, from the very beginning, K-pop's economy. Right. On the other hand, in the last year, we have seen that K-pop fans, particularly in the U.S., have made the news for social media campaigns, particularly against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Do you see in South Korea some type of similar political activism among K-pop fans? Or is this mostly Western K-pop fans within their own context? Well, yeah, there's some kind of occasion of K-pop fans' utilization of their favorite K-pop song as a part of their social movement. For example, about five or six years ago, there was a huge protest on the women's university in South Korea, Iwa Women's University. They were protesting against the administration. They were not using traditional the political or social conscious song as a chant or anthem of their uh, movement. They started to use the songs from the first generation that gave me kind of a motivation to start my research on K-pop. Mm -hmm. And there are kind of a couple of cases like that in Korea. Yes, we have growing cases of the foreign audiences incorporation of K-pop songs in their political mobilization or action. Recently, there is a fan-initiated organization which is called K-pop for Planet, which is for uh, the climate moment. Yeah, I mean, there's some kind of the political utilization of K-pop songs or idols in kind of a global level. And if I'm not mistaken, I think last year or the year before, there were also some scandals kind of related to Me Too regarding K-pop. I think one female star committed suicide after naked or sex video was shared and some members of a boy band were implicated in that. In what way is K-pop connected to some kind of nascent Me Too movement in South Korea? I would say this is very minimal. You mentioned that uh, one of the biggest scandals about Me Too was the Sunni, which was the part of the, one of the biggest labels about his systematic role-playing in human trafficking and gang-related embezzlement and things like that. If you look at the, the way how idols are trained, not only trained, recruited, trained, get contract, promoted, and do their job. It's almost like they're living in a, um, living in a barrack, military barrack. They were under 24-7 surveillance. They were controlled every single behavior, all the way go back to the time for the sleep, the diet, the personal romantic relationships, uses of the uh, technology, communication technology. So... Something we have heard about those kind of uh, things related to Me Too in K-pop industry is not known almost almost zero because everything about Idol, everything about K-pop activities has been tightly, almost 24-7, controlled and surveilled by the agency and the industry in general. Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about K-pop in your opinion? Well, I would like to uh, piggyback on your previous question about the K-pop's kind of political implication, especially about BTS, because last year's donation of $1 million to Black Lives Matter movement and another $1 million donation to Crew Nation to support independent performers and also other seemingly socially conscious engagement of the group in Korea and beyond one of the biggest topics that you have done is, you know, political implication of popular culture. So I don't think K-pop is political, and they don't even intend to do so. But what is really interesting for us to think about in terms of the political potential of K-pop is 
especially BTS. BTS, from the very beginning, they have been paying attention to what fans need, what fans want to see. And we deft uses of social media by you know, airing extensive amounts of behind-the-scene videos. Even the idols uh, and BTS members, they share intimate moments of them lying on the bed and things like that. So they constantly monitor, they constantly search what the fans' needs are, what their fans want them to do, things like that. So it is almost like a um, direct marketing to the fans. Right. So speaking about Black Lives Matter movement donation, if they found to address the fans need to address those kind of social political messages, because Black Lives Matter movement was particularly huge last year, it's going stronger too. And if they found the big chunk of their fans in the United States paying attention to uh, those kind of racial justice, if they calculate by taking some kind of proactive action to piggyback on that, they do it. Right. It is all about their the extensive, rigorous market research and development. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean that K-pop can never be political. If it is, it is fan-initiated. If it is, it is the idol's address of fans' need. Of course, there is lots of economic and political calculation they do. Yeah. Whether it is beneficial for them to do that or is detrimental to do so. But as far as the BTS's brand image goes, they start off as a general catchphrase of sympathetic and people can rely on. So their message, activities, all those things, since their debut, try to console, try to comfort the audience who've been really, really stressed out by deteriorating social political living conditions under new liberalism. So, I mean, it can go anywhere, but especially this perception about K-pop something to do with its political potential. I don't think we can say anything affirmatively as of yet. We have to wait and see how dynamics between their perceived fan base needs and wants and how the idols would like to respond mm -hmm. to that. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Goyoung. Thank you so much for having me. Goyoung Kim is smartly not on social media, but you can buy his book, From Factory Girls to K-Pop Idol Girls, Cultural Politics of Developmentalism, Patriarchy, and Neoliberalism in South Korea's Popular Music Industry, which is out in both paperback and ebook through your independent bookstore. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Playing with his beard No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird